No Change is a Given, and this is the No Change Given podcast with me, Sophia Herod. Hello, hello. I am here with Mark Linus. And Mark, I'm going to let you do the introducing. So tell us about yourself in the best way you know how. Uh, author, activist, campaigner, jack of all trades, master of none. Um, I, I, I wear a bunch of different hats, but um, they're all largely focused around sort of environmentalism. So what made you want to become an environmentalist? Because you started your career, am I right in saying, as a journalist? What made you want to go into the field of climate change and the environment and become an activist? Um, I mean, I've never been a real proper journalist. When I left uni back in, gosh, a long time ago, 95, um, actually I was turned down by the journalism colleges, you know, the, the sort of so the standard trajectory. And actually I went into... Um, environmental human rights reporting on the internet which was grey back then that was like the, you just had like one grey browser screen I'm sure you're way too young to have any inkling of what it was like but that was yeah it was literally at the very launch of the World Wide Web I was uh, an online sort of journalist but focused on environmental human rights theme it was called One World um, and did that for five years then I went off freelanced um, and started on my first book on climate change which came out in 2004 so I was doing work for that between 2000 and 2003 more or less um, and that was that was looking at the impacts of climate change so that was kind of a travelogue where I went to to submerging Pacific Islands and melting glaciers in Peru and up up to Alaska and had a, had an amazing time and it was the first probably the first um popular or popular science book which actually made climate change a reality in the sense of what was actually going on around the world in, in different parts different parts of uh, different continents and, and and in people's lives so back in 2009 i started my degree in geography and natural hazards at coventry university and that's when i became particularly interested in climate change so we studied a module and we were told to go away and read your book six degrees i had no idea of the impact it would have on me and my life and how much it would change the way i saw the world and how I would react in it from that moment forward. I remember at the time that climate change was still up for debate about whether it was real or not. And I think your book was quite sort of controversial to some people at the time. I remember some people sort of described it as scaremongering. Tell us about how it felt to be one of the first people coming out with a climate change book at that time, with it being one of the first really popular climate change books out there. And how did it feel to receive some controversial comments about it? I don't think many people did find it controversial. Um, And I I still to this day get emails from people saying or even meet people like in random conversations that read it and said it changed their life in some way or other, like you just said. Um, But yeah, I'm sure there's a whole lot more people who were forced to read it on university syllabuses who thought this was boring and it didn't change their lives at all. But, you know, we're all different and the diversity of of humanity is one of its most glorious things. I I wouldn't want everyone to feel the same way about it. you know, it's like not being interested in football or golf or something. Um, so that, that doesn't bother me at all. I don't think that Six Degrees was controversial in any sort of scientific sense that people were saying, well, this was right or this was wrong. It was simply a case of, of trying to popularise um, and make real, or well, make real using imaginary scenarios, if you like, what was in the scientific literature. Because, you know, this, the science is, is full of stats and, you know, the temperature might go up by 
one degree here or two degrees there and that might have an impact on permafrost or it might mean that 30% of glaciers in such and such, such a mountain range disappear. And, but, you know, I wanted to, to kind of put that into scenarios of what that would mean in, for real people in real places because that's what brings it to life. You know, you're a journalist, you've got to tell stories. Um, scientists aren't storytellers. It's basically the opposite type of skill. Um, so the job for me as a sort of um, science communicator was to bring those two things together. Yeah, so when I was at university, though, the question of whether climate change was real or not was a very big... It was still a thing, was it? It was, okay. yeah. <laughs> so that's why when your book at the time was actually considered controversial within my course because there were still people who were saying this is a made-up thing, this is a natural... Because obviously, the, the, you know, back in time as you've um, just researched yourself, the waves that go up and down every 100,000 years or so um, was still a question of whether or not it was just happening at a faster rate naturally. But of course, yeah. over time, that's been disproved. Um, and there are more and more climate change books out there now, aren't there? Oh, there's tons. I mean, there's, there's more than I can... I'm, I'm frankly bored of the whole climate change book thing. Uh, you really can't get me to read them anymore because there's just too many and it would be like a bus from holiday. I'd rather, do, I'd rather watch Happy Valley. Um, but... Um, <laughs> No, in terms of the secrets of Mark Linus and what he really (laughs) really enjoys doing. (laughs) Yeah, but in terms of um, climate change denialism not being a thing anymore, or not believing climate change not being a thing anymore, I actually looked into this as as a piece of science myself. Um, If you remember that stat back from uh, you know ten years or so ago, um, about twenty seven percent, no, sorry, ninety seven percent of climate papers, you know, endorsing the consensus about the reality of climate change. So I, I redid that. Uh, methodology um, for the last 20 years, um, uh, no, probably the last 10 years, actually, since 2013, and found it was like 99.4% or something. So it's it's really vanishingly small, anything that's published in the scientific literature, which would lead you to doubt the kind of conventional prevailing wisdom on, on, on human-caused climate change. Yeah, well, I'm very glad to hear that, actually. And I think... Um being one of the people to begin that big conversation and have a popular climate change book back in the day must be a very big deal. Did you feel like it at the time? Um, I mean, I was I was a lot younger then. I was like in my late 20s, probably. So I still felt like a young person in a... I still felt like a, you know, in a world of grown-ups, I still felt like a bit of a kid, as you do. I f- it's funny, as a... As somebody, I'm now 49, and I now feel like the old guy in a room full of kids. And there's like, there's there's never a point where you feel like you're just the right age. Uh, it's the weirdest thing that, um, yeah. So you feel like they think I'm a grown up, but actually I'm a child. And then you think, oh wait, I'm an old person, and, uh, <laughs> and they're all they're all much so much younger. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I won a prize for that from the Royal Society Books Prize, and that was really that was like. I don't generally go about winning prizes, so this was quite a special moment because I had that kind of imposter syndrome thing where you think, you know, they're gonna they're gonna say it's the wrong, they're gonna say it's the other guy, they're gonna you know say, whoops, you made a mistake, you didn't win the prize, your book's crap. It actually goes for the book on you know corals or rainforests or whatever the competition was. So, but yeah, it was that that was nice, and you know that was sort of my magnum opus. I mean, it's the book that I've written. I've written several books since that haven't had anything like that impact. So. Six Degrees does kind of stand alone. I think it was translated into something like 22 languages, made into a documentary on National Geographic. So it's nice to have at least one uh, book in one's writing career that um, that does, you know, does make waves like that. 
Absolutely. And you have carried on writing since, haven't you? So you went on to write our final warning, Six Degrees of Climate Emergency. Uh, I found actually in that book it very poignant when you mentioned that we are currently in a one degree climate rise, which was when you wrote Six Degrees in the past, but now it is our present. I read somewhere that you mentioned that there's a 50-50 chance of us being able to beat the climate emergency. Do you still think that's the case? So the the uh, final warning book was an update to the original Six Degrees because it's quite old now. I mean, it was published in 2007 and there's been a huge amount of new science published since then. The, the globe is warmed by you what's know, now over the one degree level, which it wasn't when I published Six Degrees. Um, we passed one degree warmer than pre-industrial temperatures in 2015. Um so, as you say, we're now living through some of the impacts I was detailing in the first chapter of the old six degrees. Um, and people kept contacting me saying, you know, are you more pessimistic, more optimistic? What's the science said since you published six degrees? And I thought, well, I might as well do a book length treatment of it to give it the the space that it that it needs to be dealt with properly. So that's that's what that um, what that book sought to do. And in terms of the that quote about fifty fifty. I don't. I think that's on Wikipedia. I don't. I'm not sure I ever said it because it's not. It doesn't make much sense to say we have a fifty fifty chance of solving climate change. I mean, what does that even mean? We haven't solved climate change. We're we're well on the way to crossing one point five, which is the objective of the Paris Agreement, was to stabilize global temperatures less at less than one one point five degrees. That's quite clearly not going to happen. So we failed, but. We've still got the opportunity to stabilise below 1.6 or 1.7 or even 2 degrees. And you have to keep fighting because at every, you know, incremental uh, amount of warming, the impacts get commensurately worse. And that's, of course, what the original Six Degrees book um, sought to illustrate chapter by chapter with each chapter being a degree warmer. <clears throat> but I'm, you know, the, 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 the worst case scenarios are a lot less likely now than they were when I wrote the first six degrees. So I no longer think we're going to see four, five or six degrees of warming. I think it's vanishingly unlikely. Humanity more or less stopped building coal plants. We've probably already reached peak oil in terms of consumption. Um, so, and, and everyone agrees, um, bar some crazies, that the trajectory for fossil fuel used by human, human civilization is down pretty much from this point on. Um, and the, the worst case scenarios of like very extreme extreme heating this century would require us to carry on increasing our fossil fuel consumption all the way to the end of the century. So we're not going to do that. We're not that stupid. We're going to develop renewables on a huge scale. That's already happening. Hopefully the nuclear power renaissance will continue as well. Um, and all of that means that we can have a world of 10 billion people with hopefully equal and fairly... Uh, generous access to clean energy because that's what we all need so from a lot of your literature you mentioned the fact that you are pro nuclear power now that's quite a controversial topic can you explain why i I can't understand why anybody would be against it i mean it's it's a it's our one of our biggest sources of carbon-free power and in the face of a climate emergency why would you why would you oppose it you'd have to say that nuclear power is worse than climate change and i don't even Greenpeace doesn't say that. I mean, they're against it for sort of historical reasons. But um, I don't think anyone can actually make a, a valid case for getting rid of nuclear energy at this point and when we need all of the carbon-free power we can get. But surely we can't deny that there is a threat to the 
ecological environment and surrounding areas when it comes to nuclear power. So I'm going to use Fukushima as an example and what happened with the tsunami there and all the radioactive waste leaching into the surrounding sea, uh, which then had an effect on the wildlife within the ocean. So how can we stop that happening in the future and becoming a mass problem then? Uh, The environmental impact of the tsunami was largely all of the plastic and the toxins from the huge area of coastline that was affected, all of the rubble, all of the floating debris that even crossed the Pacific, uh, washed up on beaches in Alaska and stuff, which added to the you know, Great Pacific garbage patch. Um, so it was a, that was a case of standard, regular chemical toxins and all of the detritus of modern industrial civilization washing into the sea and causing enormous environmental devastation. And of course, we mustn't forget the um, 18,000 plus lives that were lost as well as a result of the tsunami. Um, None of those lives were lost as a result of radiation from the nuclear disaster, by the way. And the impacts of the nuclear disaster on the environment are trivial and uh, ironically probably positive in the sense that um, when people move out of an area, and you've seen this around Chernobyl, you, you get a kind of involuntary nature reserve comes up, which around Chernobyl is, has, well, until the Russians invaded, um, was just stuffed with wildlife. So nuclear power does not have a detrimental impact on the environment, um, end of. It's actually uh, all round positive. It's probably more positive than, than renewables because it uses a lot less land and a lot less materials. So as an environmentalist, as an ecologist, I'm more enthusiastic about nuclear than anything. Just to play devil's advocate a little bit with that, though, the um, the ocean, there are, are fish that have had um, radiation poisoning. What, three eyes, <laughs> like from <laughs> well, the Simpsons. I don't know about three eyes, but <laughs> certainly some sort of disinfigurement um, as a result of the radiation leaching from uh, the nuclear. I don't. Lab. I think you. I think you're misinformed about that. I don't think that's. Tr- I don't think that's the case. It's it, the amount of the amount of radio. I mean, there's been some radioactive discharges into the ocean, but they, it quickly gets um, diluted, and it, it, it's it's trivial. It's not enough to have any impact on on marine life, uh, and certainly not in comparison to the wider effects of. I mean, look, the fishing industry has a huge impact on marine life. The the oceans are being devastated by industrial fishing, um, and all of the other things we do as well. All the pollution that washes down rivers, all of the plastic. Uh, people focus on radiation because. I don't know, because for psychological reasons or because that's just how environmentalists have always painted it, but it's not scientifically justified and we and we need to leave it behind. Interesting. Okay, I think we might have a different point of view on that question, so let's move on. So as a family, I have three kids and my husband and I had children quite young, so we don't have an infinite amount of money, but we've decided to opt for an electric car after we got rid of our gas-guzzling car, which kept breaking down. And it was all because my husband had a deal with his company where he could hire a lease car and we could then jump onto that scheme and make the most of being able to have an electric car but obviously most families including myself would not have been able to afford a new electric car from scratch and I've heard some people say that electric cars are just as bad for the environment just in a different way I don't believe this to be true judging by the information that I've read but I just wondered what your opinion was on the matter. I mean, the whole kind of green lifestyle thing, I think it's important not to uh, over-egg that and also to recall that different people have different means. So if you're a low-income household, the expensive electric car is not 
your immediate option and you shouldn't be made to feel guilty about that. So a lot of this is very middle class and I think we need to be very aware of um, the kind of class dynamics of this and we need to give support to lower income households to um, enable them to reduce energy consumption and also to decarbonize. I mean, for, in terms of households, uh, gas and oil and boilers need to be got rid of and replaced with heat pumps. Um, we just had a heat pump put in in our house uh, last year. It's, you know, it's it's not an easy process currently. Um, it's, it's also quite expensive. Again, that's going to be out of the reach of, of most low-income households, particularly those in, in energy poverty. So the government really has to do, has to do a lot more to, to mandate that, uh, that transition. I mean, I have an electric car too, and electrification of surface transport is the only way to eliminate oil. So either you stop driving around in cars, stop people driving around in cars, and we all have to, you know, walk or go on bicycles or something else, or you find ways to eliminate fossil fuel consumption from, um, from you know, surface transport. And that's what electric cars enable. And it's uh, absolutely essential that, that that process continues and that we stop selling cars, stop allowing cars with internal combustion engines to be sold. Um, I think the UK tar- government target is, is 2030, isn't it, to stop selling new petrol and, petrol and diesel cars. I think it should be 2025. I think it should, needs to happen pretty much immediately. Um, we, we need this transition to really be be turbocharged. And all of the stuff about electric cars being worse for the environment is just bollocks. Sorry. I mean, it, it, it's it's not as good as it could be because we don't have a fossil fuel-free grid. And so some of the electricity that you're charging the electric car with comes from uh, non-renewable and non-nuclear sources, you know, gas primarily. There's almost no coal left, thankfully. Um, but still miles better than petrol and diesel and we can we will hopefully have a zero carbon grid by 2035 in which case all the electricity that you're putting into your car will be zero carbon too so again end of that discussion hopefully so moving forward then for people who can't afford an electric car and without those measures currently in place what can we be doing in the meantime you've got your book the carbon calculator which helps us reduce our own carbon footprints can you highlight some of the things in your book that you mention you know overall the single biggest impact you have is on your is, is with your diet and um, meat, meat and dairy in particular. So, you know, if you're if you're vegan or you have plant based alternatives to, to animal products, you would reduce your you know carbon emissions from your diet by 90 percent. or So it's a it's a really huge. It's probably the biggest single lifestyle change that anyone can make is on their in their dietary choices. Yes, and I completely agree with you about our diet and how it can have a huge impact on the environment. I remember looking at university, all the charts about how much carbon dioxide and methane is created from uh, farming cows. And it was just, it was unbelievable. It was quite shocking, actually, how a meat diet can have such a detrimental effect on our environment. But obviously, for some people, diet is a really hard thing to change. And I mean, I've become a bit flexy, so I'm mostly vegan. I don't eat dairy anymore, but I do have fish and I'm finding it really hard not to eat fish after watching Seaspiracy as well. I mean, that is something I really want to get rid of, but um, it's really tricky when it comes to having to think about all the nutrients and everything that that involves. I've read somewhere that you believe in GMOs and I wonder whether you believe in lab-grown meats and things. Do you think that will have a big impact on our food choices in the future? Well, for, mo- for most people, it isn't. People, people love protein. People love uh, fats and uh, animal fats and proteins are uh, one of the things that as countries get wealthier, people eat more of. And so at a global level, we're consuming more animals all the time. And 
the vast majority of land mammals are our livestock, not wild animals. I mean, the number of wild animals uh, in, in sort of mass terms is, is like 10% of the livestock out there. So it's having a huge detrimental impact on the planet already. Um, and, and pretty much the only thing that can substitute for that, yes, there's people who like yourself who can go vegan for ethical reasons. And there's lots, in, thankfully, there's increasing amount of vegan alternatives, but we'll still need cheese. Uh, we'll still need better meat substitutes and we'll still need better you know but butter and dairy and stuff like that too um and one of the options for that is through precision fermentation um my friend and you know long time um uh colleague george monbiot wrote a book on this called regenesis um which is well worth reading and i'd highly recommend and essentially if you allow microbes to do the job of livestock then you can produce all of the proteins really and, and the fats that we currently get from you know from from sheep and pigs and cattle um in in vats essentially um and that can be a way of, of sparing large amounts of land from livestock and we can then see rewilding we can bring back the rainforests that have vanished from the western half of the of the united kingdom we can sequester a lot of carbon we can reverse the biodiversity crisis we still have to support farmers and we need to think about rural livelihoods and what that transition means but overall, this is this is going to be a huge epochal shift, really, in, 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 in all of our lives. What do you think is going to turn the corner then to make us be able to properly fight the climate crisis and get below that two degree mark? Do you think it's going to be every single person individually doing their bit towards the environment, for example, if everyone became vegan? Or do you think it's more about policy and how we can make changes within that? I think it's the second. I think policy... Well. I mean, it's a kind of a combination of technology, policy and lifestyle change at the same time, but they all kind of reinforce each other. And I think policy change probably comes first, which is why political activism is so important. If we hadn't had the Climate Change Act, if we hadn't had Extinction Rebellion on the streets making that into a net zero target, then we wouldn't have all of the things that result from that, like getting rid of internal combustion engines in cars and and so on and so forth. We now have to also update our support to, to, to farmers and to rural areas so that it doesn't encourage continued use of livestock um, and that we can facilitate the transition to plant-based diets. Um, that's still a big one that needs, that needs addressing with policy and that needs political activists. And, you know, the environmental group I'm working with called Replanet is, is very much focused on that transition. And that, remember, that involves technology as well, just as we didn't fix the ozone layer by banning fridges and hairspray um they you know there were new refrigerants and propellants uh, introduced and invented which didn't use cfcs and didn't damage the ozone layer we have to have the same approach to other things as well you know you're not giving up your car you're going electric you're just getting rid of the petrol and the and the oil uh, and the same goes for food really you're not giving up protein you're not giving up fat you're giving up sheep you're giving up cattle um, as a way of, of as a way of producing those so we've got to have effective substitutes at the same time as we have um, policy change which drives a, a bigger transition in society what would you say then to people who say oh i can't be bothered to do any of that i mean i'm not climate change doesn't affect me or the people who say technology is going to solve it for me someone's going to come up with an idea that's going to solve it all well i mean technology will solve it um, and people, don't, I don't want uh, a situation where people have to make individual choices when they've got a, 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 you know a thousand other things going on in their lives isn't going to work. That's why this has to be a political shift, um, a policy shift. If you know, if if, if your local um, automotive retailer isn't selling 
petrol vehicles anymore, you're going to buy an electric one. Plus, all of the other ones on the road are going to be, there's going to be much better charging infrastructure and everything else. So these people don't have to make difficult and costly decisions when you've reached that kind of tipping point and the whole of this, whole of society is doing it. It's a bit like the smoking ban, really. I mean, that's, a, that's an easier version, but people don't smoke in pubs anymore. People don't smoke inside, even in their own houses. Uh, and that, that shift happened very quickly because it was mandated by the government. Yeah, I mean, the the only thing is, is about electric cars is we went to um, a service station recently um, and there was a woman there with three kids in the car on her own and uh, she'd driven all the way to this uh, this charging station and it wasn't working and she had to be driven off by the AA. So that is a bit of a problem that definitely needs oh, to be solved, an- isn't it? Trust me, I'm an expert on charging stations that don't work <laughs> as an electric car driver because I take it on. I take it on quite long journeys across the country, and you have to kind of plot in advance. And there's a there's a good app, app out there called ZapMap, which tells you which oh, yeah. ones are currently out of service. But even then, it can you know it, you can get behind somebody, and then you've got to wait 45 minutes. So yeah. yes, the charging infrastructure has to be really focused on because that's uh, that's something which is holding back that transition to electric vehicles. So what comes next for you then? Well, as I say, I'm working with this new environmental group called Replanet. Uh, we call ourselves pro-science. So, yes, we're pro-nuclear, we're pro-GM, but we're also pro-rewilding, we're pro-veganism and plant-based diets. Um, and so we see a world really where um, you've got, I don't know, 10 billion people, whatever the world's population is, um, thriving alongside a restored nature. Um, and so I think we need I think we need a positive vision out there that it's not about going backwards. We're not going back to the caves, as people used to say about greens. Um, we're not seeking to turn the clock back. We're actually saying what well, we can use the innovative capacity of modern society. We can use the new the new technologies in all these amazing ways, but which allow us to actually share this planet with other species. Because at the moment we're in a mass extinction. At the moment we're in a climate emergency. Those things don't have to be the defining characteristics of our modern era actually we can solve those problems we can transcend them and we can get to a world where you know it's not going to be perfect it's never going to be perfect but where at least we're not threatening the future habitability of the planet itself absolutely there's always hope and even when bad things happen i think hope gets the flame of hope gets renewed um, as a campaigner, as an activist, I'm always hopeful. Um, there's nothing worse than a pessimist um, because pessimists don't get things done. So I'd say it's not the, it's not the kind of optimism where you just, you know, where you're passive. It's a kind of, I would say, positive optimism where it's, there's a kind of a determination, a kind of passion, I think, with the activists that I work with now that um, we, can, we can make the shift. We're going to have to do things very differently, but we need to get on with it. I wholeheartedly agree with that. So thank you so much, Mark, for your time. And it was really great to catch up with you. Anytime. Um, It's been great to talk. Thank you.